Amen. All right. Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you know where Matthew is, it's right before that. Malachi chapter 4. Now, if you've been with us this whole time, um, or if you haven't, you can, you can review the sermons there online. Oh, by the way, quick, quick, uh, sorry, time out. Clint and Becky Watson send their greetings. Um, we were able to sneak on up to Visalia, California and see them in their new home, um, had some dinner with them, played some games with them and stuff, and they're, they're doing great. They, uh, they miss this church family, and uh, it sounds like they're, they're finding a fit uh, right there in Visalia. So uh, pray for them when you think of it. Anyway, so we're going into Malachi. <clears throat> I was thinking about Clint because he says that he's been keeping up with the sermon series um, online and stuff. So if, if you need to review, go ahead and go to our church website, castlerockadventist.church. But um, chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's, it's, it's a message to a remnant, okay? Um, this is the remnant, the people that have come back from Babylon. So for those of you who are following the Adult Sabbath School Guide, it's Nehemiah, Ezra's time, you know, those kinds of things. So post-exile. And apparently this remnant isn't experiencing revival and reformation like they hoped. This remnant, in fact, according to chapter 1 and chapter 2, they've been giving God leftover worship. They've been giving God less than the best. Why? Chapter 2 outlines some very specific issues in terms of spiritual leadership and spousal loyalty. Chapter 3, chapter 4, the last half of Malachi kind of shifts the focus less on what the people's problem is and more on what God is going to do about it. And so here in chapter 4, it's not really that we fix ourselves. It's more that God is going to do something to help us give him the best that he deserves. And so we're going to actually start in chapter 3. Very interesting. When you look at Malachi in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, there is no chapter 4. It's, uh, it's, it's Malachi chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, actually. So this is kind of one long stream. And we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 13. I'm just going to kind of give us a little bit of a runway into chapter 4. Because at the end of Malachi chapter 3, we have two different groups of people. They're kind of uh, self-dialoguing a little bit. So this is the, the context in which Malachi 4 kind of runs into. So let's start in Malachi 3, verse 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. I'm reading from the New King James. Let's see if you can kind of pick up on the two different groups. The first group here in verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. (sighs) Woe is me. It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, and for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. It's kind of like this, this, this first group of people is looking at those who live the proud life, the blatantly wicked life, and they're saying, man, that's the enviable way to go. But why are we just going about like with sackcloth and ashes on our head and nothing's coming of it? You know, what profit is there? And so this first group, they actually envy the pride. Why? Because they're really proud in, in, in their own hearts. Verse 16 introduces us to a second group. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord listened and heard them. It's very interesting. You know, God's people, they're, they're not necessarily like overt in their, um, their rituals and following after God. They have these quiet conversations and God listens. 
Right? Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who, what are the next three words there? Who fear the Lord. Okay, so first group, those who are proud or basically who are going through the motions and in heart are envying the proud because they themselves are proud and wicked. All right? Second group are those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord. And in verse, uh, the end of verse 16, for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. In other words, they have this, this heart, their heart is set on him. Their minds are just longing to, to dwell on his character. Verse 17, they shall be mine. Okay, so they belong to the Lord. Says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Quick question before we start diving into chapter 4. Of these two groups, those who are proud, those who are mournful in their religiosity, but really are proud in heart, and then those who fear the Lord, which of those two groups would you rather belong to? Right? I mean, I guess that's kind of a rhetorical question, but I think you, we, we sense, you know, none of us wakes up in the morning and says, man, let me just envy the proud today because I am proud. No, many of us long to, like this verse 17 we want this proclamation over our lives. They shall be mine. Right? We want God to say that of us. That we belong to him and he belongs to us. And in verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, <clears throat> speaks of a time in which there will be a d- difference between these two. In verse 18, Then you shall discern. Meaning prior to that, you can't discern. Prior to that, kind of like the wheat and the tares, they kind of grow up together. Prior to that, amongst God's people, amongst God's remnant, there are those who at heart are proud, and there are those who at heart fear the Lord and belong to Him. But there is a time, verse 18 says, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Now, I mentioned the parable of the the wheat and the tares. That's something that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. You, You can read that parable there. But in that parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, when is the time? When is the time that the, 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 farmer's, uh, ha- uh, the farmer's servants are able to actually discern between the wheat and the tares? The harvest, which is when? The end. Okay, so... Chapter 3, verse 18 is kind of launching us now, not just to the time when Jesus would come, which is what chapter 3 was talking about. You know, behold, I will come. I'll send my messenger. You know, things like that. Chapter 3, 18 is now launching us to the second coming of Jesus, right? When we will be able to discern. All right, so here it is. Chapter 4, verse 1, or if you've got your Hebrew scriptures, chapter 3, verse 19. For behold, the day is coming. Which day? The end, the day, right? The harvest, according to Matthew 13. The day is coming. Well, let's see. Let's, let's, what, what are we hearing here? Burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. <laughs> go ahead, take a breath. All right, here we go. The day is coming. When God is talking about discerning between the wheat and the tares, when God is talking about discerning between those who pretend to be religious, yet really at heart are proud, they are their own gods, and those who fear the Lord, who belong to Him, the only time we're going to tell is in that day. That day is coming. And what's really interesting to me is that, you know, for this remnant people post-exile, 
God does much to respond to their lukewarmth. He does much to, to, to identify specific issues that they're, that they're needing to address, just like the, the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 3, just like he does to address specific things of Laodicea. But what's really interesting to me is that God does more than just address specific issues. What he does, the way he responds to a... Um, a leftover satisfied remnant is that he pictures the future. This is one of the things that God does in order to kind of kickstart revival in our lives is he gives us opportunity to recapture a vision of the future, which implies to me that somewhere along the line, the lukewarmth that we tend towards happens as we lose sight of the future. I think of another parable Jesus told, parable of the sower. We were listening to the story, the stories being told in the car on the long ride home. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> there's a parable of the sower, the four different types of soil, right? The wayside, the pathway, the rocky soil. And then there's a third soil that it was uh, the thorny ground. Do you remember that? Yeah, and as seeds grew from this thorny ground, it says that their fruitfulness was choked out. By the thorns. And when Jesus is explaining the thorns, do you remember what he identifies as the thorns? In other words, this is ground that, that had life, it just didn't have fruit. This is ground that had all the appearance of being connected, but it didn't really produce. Okay? But do you remember the thorns that he identified? He said the deceitfulness of riches and the what? The worries and concerns of this life. Yeah. Matthew 13, verse 22, in the New King James, says the cares of this world, this present tense. In other words, when we lose sight of beyond this present tense, that's when we settle for leftover worship. That's when we become lukewarm. When there's no care for life beyond this world, we give God leftovers less than the best. And so here's God. He's picturing kind of uh, startling our senses so to speak so that we can recapture this vision so we can recognize that there's more to it than this so for behold he's getting our attention behold the day is coming and according to this verse what does he want us to know about this day it's burning burning like an oven the emphasis being on the consuming nature of this day and according to this verse what is consumed well, man, I, don't know. I don't know what kind of tone of voice you have in your mental audio Bible. <laughs> Burning like an oven and all the... Pro- I don't know. I was uh, practicing this with Debbie the other day. <laughs> Bur- Does that sound intimidating? No. Uh, <laughs> but what I, I guess what I want to emphasize here, or at least what Malachi helps us emphasize is that what is destroyed, it says all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly. He's connecting some dots for us. Pride and wickedness, they're not two separate things. Pride and wickedness are not two separate things. They're one and the same. That beneath all the, the sins of our lives, the things that we feel are shortcomings in our lives, the things that we feel are less than ideal, and we know need to be changed. At the root of it, it's love of self, right? It's pr- I remember sitting as a freshman in college at Pacific Union College and hearing this speaker 
And the very opening remarks was, sin is love. And as a freshman theology major, I like threw down my pen. I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> sin is love. He, he started to describe misplaced love. It's supreme love of self rather than of God. That's what it is. That it boils down to pride. And the people who call the proud blessed in, you know, in chapter 315, so now we call the proud blessed. The people who call the proud blessed and those who do wickedness are, are raised up as if they're free, you know, they're exalted, they're put on pedestals as if, oh man, those who live the proud life, those who w- live the blatantly wicked life, and you know, oh man, they, they, they've just got it all. In the end, God paints a picture. Well, when this day comes and it's burning like an oven, their pride is combustible material in the presence of God. You hear it? I mean, his presence is a consuming fire. Hebrews tells us he is a consuming fire. In Genesis 15, when Abraham is asking for God for a sign that, man, how do I know that you're really going to fulfill your promises? God shows up and he shows up as himself, but he, he shows up as an oven. I don't know if you've read that before. In Genesis 15, he's walking through these sacrifices that Abraham has laid out. And it's, he's showing up. He's like, this is me. I am an oven. Why? Because his presence consumes. What does his presence consume? All the pride and wickedness that does not exist in his character. That's who he is. You know, those who were in that first group calling the proud um, and wicked as if they're, they're living the free life and stuff. It, chapter 4 tells us a different story. They're stubble. Sin and all its pride just cannot exist in the presence of God. And very, very much, like completely, this is, this is true. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 1, the day is coming which will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> Notice how complete this, this uh, consummation is. That will leave them neither root nor branch. Uh, I don't know if you see the significance of that, but roots are, you know, talking about the, the very sources of sin, the things that give sin its permanence and lingering capacity. That, those are the roots. And then the branches are the effects of sin, the, the, the things that, that are the consequences, the, uh, the things that we see and are really the collateral damage of sin. And I am so thankful <laughs> that there is a day that's coming that will not just deal with the branches of sin, but also its roots. There is a day coming that's burning like an oven where there will be a complete end to sin and all it has wreaked havoc upon us. There's no more abuse, no more hurt, no more violence, no more shootings, no more bad news to read, no more death. Man, that's a day we can look forward to. That's a day I I am looking forward to. The day is coming. Yeah, it's burning hot for some. But according to verse 2, Notice, it's a completely different experience for the second group. It's a completely different experience for those who actually fear the Lord and belong to Him. Notice, chapter 4, verse 2, But to you who, what? Fear my name, right? The Son of Righteousness shall arise. So it's not just this burning oven. The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. And you shall go out, grow fat like stall-fed calves. I mean, these are things that we may not find in Hallmark cards today. Like, oh, oh, love of my life, you're like a stall-fed calf. No. <clears throat> but this, this, is, this is abundant language. This is everything's right in the world language, okay, for the ancient Near Eastern mind. 
Verse 3, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Ah, for those who fear the Lord, you know, the, the, the other group, the, for those who belong to God, who are God's precious jewels, when his day comes, when his presence that is a consuming fire comes, it's not a burning oven, it's a son of righteousness. And I was, I, you know, we, we thought about driving through Vail Pass last night. <clears throat> it, like we, we heard that it was closed. We saw signs that it was closed. All our apps said it was closed. We thought about just kind of getting in line and just waiting there and stuff. But then I thought about, I don't know if I want to drive the rest of that hill in the dark, you know? But when the sun rises, even the coldness seems warm. When the sun rises, Things start moving. When the sun rises, you see color, you see life, you see beauty. The sun of righteousness for the proud and wicked is like a burning oven that consumes them. But for those who fear God's name, the sun of righteousness means, the sun of righteousness means healing. Ah, God's presence, therefore, for those who fear him, is welcomed warmth. Welcomed warmth, like those who have been overtaken by the chill of night or stuck on I-70 on a moonless night. They rejoice at the first gleamings of dawn. It's a new day. The the picture of the future is, is a new day that brings life and health and healing. God's presence is that to those who fear the Lord. I know I asked this question earlier, which group do you want to be in? Yeah, I want to be in that group. I tell you what, God wants us to be in that group. God wants each of us to be in that. He doesn't want his presence to be harmful to us. He wants his presence to be healing to us. God is the one who went after Adam and Eve when they first sinned, when they first fell, when they first put self on the throne of their hearts, when they first exercised pride and wickedness. He was the one that went after him, after them. But they couldn't handle being in his presence. So out of mercy, he escorted them out. In this time, God is saying, hey, the relationship's going to be restored. I want you to be ready. And the rest of Malachi, you're looking for ways to get ready. The Malachi chapter 4 is describing it as, just fear my name. (laughs) Be part of the group who fears my name. That's the group that he wants us to be in. So maybe the, the question that we ought to study is, what does it mean to fear God? Right? What does it really mean to fear the Lord? Like it says in, in chapter 316, then those who feared the Lord. Uh, right? <clears throat> and here in chapter 4, verse 2, but to you who fear my name, what does it mean to fear God? And I want to kind of open up this question to you. When, I, when you read fear God, like in the, uh, the, third, uh, the three angels' messages in chapter, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, you, know, you, you hear this everlasting gospel that's being proclaimed to all the world. And then the very first words of that everlasting gospel is, fear God. When you hear those two words, fear God or fear the Lord, what comes to your mind? What does that mean experientially and practically for you? Any ideas? I'm I'm totally open to this. I mean, I have things I want to share, but I just want to kind of hear where we're at. What, What does it mean to fear the Lord, to fear God? Nice. He is awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, respect him for who he is, realizing that he's not limited by our own descriptions or what we've seen him do in the past, but he's awesome. Very literally awesome. Okay, okay. Any other ideas come as far as fearing God? Yeah. 
So we're not necessarily picturing, yeah, please. Just the reverence for God. Reverence for God. Very cool. Okay, okay, good, good. So this sense of reverence, the sense of awe, sense of he's not just a cuddly teddy bear, right? Okay, okay, yeah. Mm, okay, so it's not just an attitude of, of reverence, while that may be part of it. It's also a very practical loyalty, a choosing of sides, a drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, 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 when I fear the king or when I fear God, this is who I stand for. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay, can we look at a couple of verses together? So hold a bookmark in Malachi. <clears throat> I thought about just like putting them all on the screen and stuff, but... I think this is more fun. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. This is probably, like, there are, whew, there are probably dozens of verses that we can go to, but I, I'll just kind of share with you the ones that help shape the concept of fear, biblically speaking, fearing God. Exodus 20, verse 20. What's really interesting is that Exodus 20, verse 20, um, actually puts fear and fear side by side. This is the fear that you don't want This is the fear that we do want, okay? Really interesting here. Exodus 20, at the very tail end of the Ten Commandments. So this is Moses talking to the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. When you're there, say amen. Okay, now think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of those who are at the foot of Mount Sinai. That was a very awesome experience. Would you not agree, yeah? Okay, they're seeing a cloud, they're hearing the rumble, probably feeling the rumble too, of God's presence in a very literal way. They're hearing the Ten Commandments. And Moses says, Exodus 20, verse 20, the Bible says, Moses said to the people, do not, what's the next word? Fear. fear. Okay? There's a fear that you can put aside. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may what? Not sin. Very interesting. Okay? Don't be afraid, but let God's fear be before you. <laughs> In other words, don't be afraid of God, but have this reverence, this awe of Him, this attitude of surrender, so that it results in a life where you actually fear to sin against God where your relationship with him is supreme priority to you and you fear to do anything that would be displeasing to him. That's the kind of fear that Moses is encouraging here at the tail end of hearing for the first time the Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? Yeah? Really interesting. So don't be afraid of him like he's going to put his thumb over you and just squash you. You know, that's not the concept that Moses wants for us. What he, or that God wants for us. He's encouraging a fear before us so that it results in a life without sin. What's really interesting, oh man, so many verses. Okay, let me, let me go to, um, okay, let's go to two more. Psalm 130, verse 4. Psalm 130, verse 4. Ask yourself the question, well, then, you know, if I understand what true fear is or the fear of God is, where does it really come from? Um, Okay, hold the finger. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go. Here we go. Psalm 130, verse 4. 
Can you hold a finger here? And I want to point out Genesis 22 first. Um, sometimes it's a cool rule of thumb if you're ever trying to figure out a concept or you know, get to the root of a biblical idea. It's really cool to go to the very first time that idea or concept is mentioned. Um, you know, Bible scholars and stuff, they call it the principle of first mention or the law of first mention. And Genesis 22, verse, I think it's verse 12, is actually the very first time the phrase fear God is used in Scripture. It's really cool. So I'll go to Genesis 22, and then we'll talk about where fear really comes from. All right, Genesis 22. What fear really is at its root from the very first time we read about it in Scripture. This is Abraham on top of Mount Moriah. Three days journey, not knowing where he's supposed to go, but knowing that he's supposed to offer his son, the promised son, as a sacrifice to God. He's not sure how God is going to keep faithful to his promise that his lineage would be as numerous as the stars, especially if you have to sacrifice his, own son, his only son. And so he's going forward with it by faith, the ultimate test of loyalty. Okay? And in Genesis 22, verse 12, knife in hand, raised up. I'll start in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what are the next two words? That you fear God. Why? Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So to fear him is, is more than just an attitude of reverence. To fear him is actually a, a, a decision to not withhold anything from God. To fear God is to say, everything's on the table. All my life is yours. When I sing, I surrender, I, I sing, I surrender all, not just I surrender some. I, you know, I, everything is yours, God, even the things that I don't understand. According to Exodus 20, fearing God is that, to have that kind of loyalty where everything belongs to Him. It results in a life that is without sin, so that we don't sin against God. And where does this come from? Okay, now Psalm 130, verse 4. Psalm 130, I'll start in verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Cause and effect relationship here. According to this, the effect is fearing God. But according to this, what is the cause? What is it? Salvation. salvation. The experience of salvation. The experience of grace covering our sin. This fear, this fear that lays all out on the table, this fear that, that uh, is afraid to do anything displeasing to God, that the very thought of that is something that troubles us. This fear comes from an experience of God's forgiveness, hope in His mercy that doesn't give license for sin, but paints sin in the most undesirable light. When we see what Jesus has done for us, we realize... Oh, all my life belongs to him because he gave all his life to me. That's where true fear comes from. Do we follow that? Yes or no? Yeah? Pretty awesome. So when Malachi says, hey, for those who fear my name, 
Man, that day that where my presence is full on, nothing held back, that day might be burning like an oven for some, but for those who truly fear me, who have withheld nothing from me, for them, the son of righteousness is, has healing in his wings. That's what we might call not just amazing grace. That's what we might call blazing grace, okay? <laughs> blazing grace. Why? Because they've already allowed sin and self to be consumed. They've already been intentional about garnering or securing for themselves the presence of God on a daily level so that His presence can consume any pride and wickedness that might stand between a real relationship with Him on the daily so that on that eventual day, the Son of Righteousness is like healing in His wings. All right, back to Malachi. Back to Malachi. So we know that, that fear comes from these kinds of things, that it results in these kinds of things. <clears throat> and the rest of Malachi's message is almost a prescription to kind of back this up. It's giving some practical things, both to look back to and look forward to. There's almost a divine prescription here, because chapter 4, verse 4 starts with a command. Okay, we're going to look at how Malachi views uh, kind of the genesis or the, the sustaining of fear this healthy fear of God. All right, when you're back to Malachi 4, say amen. All right, Malachi 4, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. All right, very interesting. As we're kind of carrying on this idea of, I want to be part of that group that fears the Lord. God gives us two things. One thing to do and one thing to let him do. Okay? One thing to look back on, one thing to look forward to. According to verse 4, What's the one command? Remember. Yeah? Remember. All right, this is about a remnant who needs some serious transformation in their lives. This is a remnant who, who needs to kind of upshift from giving God leftover worship to giving God the best. And the real appeal, as we, you know, the appeal in chapter 3 was return to me. The appeal in chapter 4 is Remember. I love the fact that the change that we want to see in our lives, the change that we desperately need in our lives, has less to do with what we fix and more to do with remembering what God has done to fix us. (laughs) I know that was kind of a long sentence, but I, I hope that kind of made sense. It has less to do with what we fix and more to do with remembering what God has done to fix us. Why do I say that? Because what specifically are we supposed to remember according to this verse? Remember the law of Moses. Remember the law of Moses. Now this is a really interesting topic we could study even more. But the law of Moses is more than just the Ten Commandment law. The law of Moses, when you look at its uses throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses really is, is referring to the Decalogue as a whole. The books of Moses altogether. 
And the fact that it says, uh, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. I mean, that's kind of formulaic for referring to the covenant law. Okay, the covenant, the relationship there. And what's really interesting is that the Advent pioneers saw this phrase, remember the law of Moses, as a specific reference to the ceremonial law in the books of Moses, the sanctuary services, you know, what, what was needed for sacrifices, all of its symbols and the things that it would also anticipate regarding Jesus' ministry. In other words, when we remember that law, that Old Testament prefigure, what we're looking at is we're remembering all the Old Testament promises of what Jesus would do as our lamb and high priest. And that's what fixes us. That's what moves the remnant from being a leftover satisfied remnant to a revived and reformed remnant. Remembering the law of Moses. Remembering the promises made and how those promises have been kept all in the ministry of Jesus as both lamb and high priest. Are you with me? Does that make sense? In other words, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what Malachi is saying. Remember the law of Moses. Well, who's described in the law? Jesus. (laughs) That's what it is. Remember the law of Moses. But more than that, more than that, in verse 5, God doesn't just call, call to mind the things that they're to look to, that we as a remnant are to look to. He's also calling to mind the things that He will do. Notice the active agent, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Really interesting. Again, I don't know, Moses and Elijah, you follow that that theme throughout scripture, Moses and Elijah. That's a really interesting study. But here again, Moses and Elijah kind of juxtaposed, put together. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what's the result? What's the hoped uh, outcome? Verse six, and he will turn what? The hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What the remnant needs is heart turn. Not, not heartburn. Maybe you got some of that over Thanksgiving. But uh, what the remnant needs is heart turn. And according to this promise, God is promising to send Elijah the prophet. By Malachi's day, Elijah had already come. Elijah's story was very, very well known. I mean, what, what heart turn did Elijah's story result in? You remember Mount Carmel? 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 37. When, when Elijah is actually praying, he's like, let it be known this day that you are God and that you have turned the hearts of Israel. In other words, what he's praying for, that heart turn that he's praying for, he's praying for repentance. He's praying for a turn of heart, a restored relationship with God. And that's really what resulted. But when did it happen? It only happened after fire came down from heaven Not upon the people, but upon what? When wrath was deserved, but it was diverted. That resulted in heart turn. Again, it's a look to Jesus' prophecy here. That's what Elijah's message does. The essence of the prophecy is that God will work to stir repentance among his people if there's ever departure from the covenant relationship. Just as, the, just as he did uh, on top of Mount Carmel, just as he did in the time of Jesus, right? When Jesus uh, came on the scene, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But who came before Jesus? 
John the Baptist. And when Jesus was asked about John the Baptist's identity in Matthew chapter 11, he actually quotes straight from Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger before that. Anyway, so he's quote, and he says, that, that guy, John the Baptist, who did you come out to see? Did you come out to see a, 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 someone just you know, wearing fine linens? And, or did you come out to see a reed shaking with the wind, kind of waffling back and forth between the p- opinions of people? No, you came to see Elijah the prophet. <laughs> That's what Jesus points. John the Baptist was the New Testament fulfillment. Why? Because John's mission was to turn the hearts of people. Actually, if you're reading the Christmas story, uh, you know, for those who are following the Advent devotionals and stuff, maybe you'll pick up on that. The prophecies regarding John the Baptist's birth are very Elijah-esque. Very much so. You read it in Luke chapter 1, over and over. The New Testament fulfillment was in John the Baptist. Why? Because there was a covenant people that had turned from their covenant relationship with God. And there was a messenger to turn their hearts. To turn their hearts. To picture again the sense that fire was deserved, but it was diverted. (laughs) But according to this, in Malachi 4, verse 5, Elijah comes before the coming, not just of the, you know, the lowly day of the Lord. It comes before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so not only is there fulfillment in the New Testament, but I believe that this is actually anticipating an end time fulfillment. And end time people who like Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, who like John the Baptist by the Jordan River, will turn the hearts of an unfaithful people to a faithful God. God is looking for a a people who will give him our best. A God would inspire an end time movement to prepare people for that day, for God to send a message to prepare people for the refiner's arrival, so to speak. And just as Elijah led people to worship the true God, just as John the Baptist made ready a people prepared for the Lord, so this end time movement would prepare a people for the Lord by calling for the worship of the true God. By calling uh, wickedness by its right name. By calling people to fear Him and give Him glory. And it's prophetically outlined in the 14th chapter of Revelation. It's known as the three angels' messages. And it ultimately, at the end of those three angels... It ultimately results in, this is the patience of the saints. These are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That the result of this message would actually result in people whose hearts have turned. Do you follow that? Oh, man. That's the Elijah message. That's the Elijah people. And by the grace of God, he is the one that sends this. I mean, like, we can kind of rah-rah ourselves and say, let's do this. Who's with me? But here's the thing. Malachi's point is, I will send Elijah. And if God is sending that kind of movement at this time of earth's history, then I want to be like Isaiah and say, here I am. Send me, right? I want to be part of that. As an Adventist church, and I, you know, this is specifically, you know, for this church plant to be placed in this community at this time of earth's history. I believe God is calling us as a church to give God our best and to be like Isaiah, like Malachi, to be those that he can send and fulfill this promise that he would send Elijah to turn hearts, to turn hearts in this community. 
And so, yeah, I'll say, who's with me? Yeah, right, amen. But here, again, <clears throat> this is what God wants to do. This is not about what we do. This is about what God wants us to do. Anything that we do here in Malachi 4 is only to remember what he has already done and what he will do, okay? So let's be faithful in that. Let's behold him in that. Let's keep our eyes fixed on him in that. And he is the one who makes us his. He is the one who will send us like Elijah's in this day. So could it be that giving God our best really boils down to surrendering to the Spirit's work in us and through us? Today, I just have two simple appeals. <clears throat> For those of you who may feel as though your, your leftover worship has, has kind of overtaken you. For those who may feel that unfruitfulness in your life is, is characterized your religiosity, though you're going through the motions, I, I want to appeal to us that let us frame the present in terms of the future and recapture the vision, just like Malachi is asking us to do. Recapture the vision of what God is going to do. Yeah. If you feel like, man, I'm, I'm alive, but I'm unfruitful, maybe the cares of this world have become the supreme uh, priority in our lives. So let's frame the present in terms of the future of what God is going to do, making sure that our fruitfulness isn't choked out by the cares of this world or a carelessness of the world to come. And the second appeal is this. Let's ask God, let's make this our prayer, this, uh, you know, as we round out 2019, as, you know, maybe you're preparing for resolutions already for 2020 and stuff. But <clears throat> let's commit ourselves to actually being those who fear God. And where that experience comes from, we already studied it. It comes as we see and experience the forgiveness of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. This is something that he does. It's only as we remember him and what he's already done. So let him work in us the fear of the Lord to lead us to that point of not holding anything back from the Lord. Yeah. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, this is our desire. And Lord, this was some serious stuff to study on a Thanksgiving holiday weekend. But Lord, I am thanking you today for the fact that you actually do have plans and that you've made those plans known to us. You know, we, in our present tense, tripping and troubles, we often lose sight of what you're going to do. And so thanks for just kind of lifting up our eyes just a little bit today. We pray that you would cultivate a habit to frame the present in terms of the future. And so for any of us who are in a season of being overcome by this present world and all of its cares, all of its worries and anxieties and deceitfulness, Lord, I ask that you would give us a grand vision of the future. Give us a grand vision of how you're going to clean all this up and wrap all this up and prepare us for that day. We're asking also, Father, that you would truly tune our hearts to fear the Lord. Oh, lead us into that experience genuinely. Cause us to know your forgiveness on a firsthand level. Turn our hearts today and use us to turn the hearts of others. We pray this in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen.